Welcome to Blink of an Eye, life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down, and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Episode 8, Archer's Tree Weeps Too, She Knows. August 7th, Day 3. Life can change in the blink of an eye. 3.02 a.m. My phone pinged as I drove up the parkway, headed back to the trauma unit as fast as I could. It was Billy. He texted, oxygen levels better now, but the pneumonia will take a long time to recover from, so not likely to come off respirator anytime soon. And pneumonia is dangerous and could be life-threatening. I pulled over on the highway. I sent a text to family and friends. Storm heaven. Both of Archer's lungs have collapsed. It was 3.10 a.m. My phone rang. Billy called me. Go back home, honey. I'll be here. I'll keep you updated. They said it just takes time. They've been beating on him on and off the last hour. It's quiet now. I'm going back to sleep, honey. Go back home. I was so torn. I did not want to go back home. I wanted to be with Archer. I also wanted Billy to know I trusted him. Have you ever been in that kind of a dilemma? It was awful. I knew it was important to defer to Billy. I wasn't going to override him. I wanted to, though. Oh, God, please help me make good choices. I took the next exit and turned around, even though I was almost to exit 38 for the Atlantic City Expressway. Oh. I hated turning around, heading back to Cape May. I really did. My instincts told me, don't turn around. But I was trying hard to keep my take charge, go ahead energy in check. And it was hard. Do I rely on what my body told me? Or was it just what I wanted to do? Billy said he'd keep me posted and that there was nothing for me to do. I had to trust him. These thoughts occupied my mind the entire drive back to exit zero. I pulled into our little driveway. The crunch of my walking on the crushed oyster shells in our driveway seemed loud at 3.45 a.m. The night was so peaceful. The stars were bright as always, because our place is on the rural side of Cape May, and the nights are always so dark. I crawled back into bed. I couldn't sleep. I guess I finally did, but I woke up a number of times with a jerk as I heard, beep, 
beep, beep, or ee I'd be so disoriented as to where I was when I, at first when I woke up, like, where's Archer? Oh, I'm at home. I'm not at the hospital. Oh, I'd go back to sleep. But it happened again. ee On the third time, I just got up. It was about 7.50 in the morning anyway. I looked at my phone. No word from Billy as I scrolled through the many texts. I had put my phone under a pillow, actually, so as not to hear the sounds of the pings of the texts, even though I needed my phone on if Billy called me. Petey was just then texting me, asking when they should come back to the hospital room. I guess he must have stayed in Atlantic City and taken one of those rooms at Caesars thanks to that angel two nights ago. Was was it two nights ago? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because it was our first night and the hospital administrator had told me my family could not camp out and sleep in the family waiting room. Oof, I was losing track of which day it was. You know, it's funny. Once your smartphone is open, it will tell you the time, but it doesn't tell you the date or the day of the week. I really needed a paper calendar. I texted Petey back, whenever you feel rested, sweetheart, lunchtime. No one else was up yet in the house. I didn't even know who was sleeping there. It was quiet as I walked out the kitchen screen door with a snap as it hit the frame before I could catch it. There on the picnic table where we had most of our meals were two of Archer's lacrosse sticks and a ball. Oof, I made my way back around to the back of the house to the outdoor shower, tiptoeing my way there on stepping stones I had laid in the grass years ago so your tootsies wouldn't get wet in the thick grass in the morning dew and placing each foot one at a time on each flat stone. Something so strange caught my eye. Falling leaves? How could that be? Where did they come from? I looked up, and the tree in our backyard was green. It was summertime. The backyard itself was littered with croquet mallets, and brightly colored croquet balls casually dropped in the grass in what I imagined were the exact same spots where each player had been standing the night or two before during a game of croquet that Archer was having with his friends, probably when the lucky winner hit the wicket for the victory. Archer adored croquet, and he and his friends played most every night of the summer in the light of the moon and the lantern they hung on the outdoor shower. I could see the lantern. And I also noticed those boys had stuck one of my candles in the ground next to a wicket. I've grown used to the innovations of boys over the years. But back where they started the game, closest to the tree, was an area lightly covered with brown leaves. How could that be? I couldn't make sense of it. I looked around 
and up and down the other yards along our country-like little backyards, but could see no other trees shedding. Nothing was shedding their leaves. So strange. We had been referring to our one tree back there as Archer's tree for years, since it was Archer who logged in a lot of time in the shade of her branches, reading in a hammock during the day and in the protection of those branches from occasional light rain at night when they played croquet. The tree, she had grown a lot in the last couple years, just like Archer had. Sort of like, as I think about it, she and Archer kind of grew up together. I could see the lawnmower, too, right where Archer had left it outside the shed. Archer took meticulous care to mow and create a croquet course, even though our grass was rough and full of weeds. He didn't care. He loved it. Our old backyard. And my sunflowers, hibiscus, and roses, they loved it too. But it was so strange. I could feel my lips quivering as I slowly gazed and looked at each mallet. I didn't want to move them. I just stood there on a stepping stone in the morning light wrapped in a towel, staring at them. I wanted them to stay exactly as they were, preserved forever, with the memory of Archer laughing and playing, and there, ready for him when he would play again. You know, I think grief and loss cause many of us to cling to the past, that is, the past that is happy, and not just for happy memories, but I think in a really queer way that the beauty of the memory itself eases whatever loss we have or had or are working through. Even though when the loss is fresh, the beautiful memory is really, really devastating because it sharpens the reality of the then and the now. I knew it could bring on feelings of despair, too. I could just feel them, and that'd be dangerous to get stuck in that. But the way I saw it for me was like, I wanted those croquet mallets and balls and time itself to just stand, stand still. Just give me a little time to process this. Just stand still, okay? I just need a little time. And in a good way, I thought I could take the poison out of this snake bite. You know what I mean? Like, maybe if you bypass the sharpness of returning to the memories and you just skip over the despair, the sadness of that one, you know, like, if you never do it, if you never revisit it to make sense of it or to make peace with it, that, that poison might get stuck in you and kill you one way or the other. Oh, Lord, please help me not be bitter.
I'd rather be sad forever, but not bitter. Please, Lord. I walked into the shower and turned on the hot water. As the rain head on the shower poured down on me, it dawned on me. Those leaves, this tree that watched Archer day and night, could she be mourning too? I think she is. I just wept and wept and wept. And honestly, I couldn't tell the difference between the hot shower raining down on my face and my hot tears. And it didn't matter. As part of my look back five years later, I interviewed Patty Schmucker, who is the mother of James Schmucker, one of Archer's dear friends, whom he spent a lot of time with working and playing, and of Jackie Schmucker, whom you met earlier, who also worked at the beach club with Archer and James. I didn't really know Patty back then. Here's an excerpt of Patty talking about what her kids would tell her over the years. And then you would hear stories of Jackie and Archer because it was the bacon story or playing backgammon. And then I would hear the stories of Archer with James after hours when they had left the beach club. So I had, you know, I had this whole thing, you know, that I would hear because maybe there was many days that it was kind of slow in the kitchen. So Jackie and Archer would play backgammon or he would talk about the books he was reading and Jackie would say, did you read this mom? Maybe I'll read this one. And I would say, oh yeah, that's a good book. How'd you hear that? Well, Archer was reading it. So I had that whole side of Archer because that's Jackie, you know, like the games and the books and the reading and the, and then the whole other side with James saying, we play croquet under, is it a willow tree? Isn't that amazing? And it's so interesting to me too, how James would tell you that they'd be playing croquet like under that tree because I came to think of that tree as Archer's tree. And when you just yes. asked me about it, it's like, what, what kind of tree is that? I think it's a maple. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. But it just was, it was Archer's tree. Yeah. James would always talk about the yard, backyard. It's the coolest backyard, Mom. We go out there. There's this big tree. And I'd say, what kind of tree? And I think he said, like, willow, or he explained it. Yeah. And they have really great grass. And this is where we play. That we would just crack up because mm -hmm. uh, what what may have made it great is that Archer would mow it in just the pattern of the course. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think that like for James, I just remember that just, he would always be going down to your house. And I would always say to my kids, how come you don't want to have anyone at our house type thing? Um, you know, we have a, we have a pool, we have a yard, we yeah, have, a, have a, the very but, nice house. <laughs> but the reality is when you're that age, no different when I was that age growing up in Cape May, you want to be in Cape May. You want to ride your bikes. You want to ride the, you know, the boardwalk, the beachfront, go down the cove go surfing if it's your day off. So, you know, they don't want to be home and in your own backyard on your day off. So, and yeah. I would always say, are you sure it's okay if you're down there? They don't mind. Yeah, we play croquet. Then we ride bikes. I'm like. Backyard croquet. Archer's tree. It's curious that James thought she was a willow. She wasn't. But as I returned home from the hospital, and walked through the yard to the outdoor shower. I think Archer's tree was weeping. It was as if 
She knew. She knows. James must have felt it too when he was there, her branches loving Archer and watching over him and his friends these growing up years. Oh yes, she knows. Here are some excerpts of different interviews with some of Archer's friends. Parker Mitchell, who was visiting us that week from Baltimore and being inducted into Backyard Croquet, and beach friends, Danny Gianoscoli and Patty's son, James Schmucker. The week was probably one of the most fun weeks I think that I've really ever had. Um, you guys are so welcoming. And like, that was right when me and Archer kind of, we were close and obviously we had played MLC together when we were really young before he had came to McDonough. So we knew each other, but we really didn't become as close as we were pretty much up until that point. And then kind of once we got up there, I mean, it was amazing just going to the beach every day and hanging out with the Gianoscalis of the week itself are, are fond memories that still I, I had an amazing time. Um, so the night before, uh, I think was when we were playing croquet. Yeah. Um, I, I think that was the summer when we got into croquet. Um, so we found the, the mallets in your shed, I believe. And then we started playing in your yard. Um, great yard for it. Perfect little square flat backyard, by the way. Um, but yeah, we played a lot of croquet in the backyard, a lot of um, Monopoly too. It's uber competitive about Monopoly. Um, <laughs> that was a lot of fun. So yeah, I mean, just hanging out, just just being being able to bike over to each other's house, um, whatever, whichever one it might be, and just being able to pop in and say what's up, and um, yeah, just like treat like treat the other house like like uh, like family. Uh, yeah. And you're always welcome, and there's always fun to be had. Hanging out with my friends, really. Busting each other's chops. Keeping them always poking fun at each other. Staying playful. Yeah, absolutely. And um, just being active, doing things, being outside, uh, really, really bad. Gosh, you and Archer um, had, had so many <laughs> days and nights being outside. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Playing croquet or riding bikes around or, you know what I mean, going on a walk, get some ice cream going to scoops, stuff like that, you know. Just hanging, but doing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't think we ever sat around and watched a movie. You weren't inside too much. No. It'd be raining outside or something like that, we'd still be like, get a game croquet. (laughs) Yeah. Just a light drizzle. (laughs) Archer had wonderful friendships. I toweled off and was putting on my robe to walk back outside. When I looked in the crookedly hung mirror framed in barnwood about eye level and my eye caught a glimpse of what was resting on the wooden shower ledge below the mirror. Oh, the sight just about knocked me over. Of all things, I would have wiped it away. It was such a tiny little memento, but there it was. Next to Archer's blue plastic Bic razor, randomly left on the shelf as if he had been in a hurry or something, was a little pile of little blondish, light brown, pencil-straight facial fuzz hairs. He must have shaved them off his chin or his sideburns. He was only 16, going on 17. 
I just stared at them. I gently scooped them up in my hands. They were precious little remnants, reminders of one of those daily activities that marked this precious time of his life, growing into a young man, and that he, I don't even want to say it, but I knew it was true. He wasn't going to be able to hold that razor anymore. <laughs> oh, Lord, please help me be strong. Oh, all the little things we take for granted. You know, the daily things you might even think are a chore. Brushing your teeth, washing your hair, combing your hair, shaving. Lord, I promise I will never take my ability to do these things for granted. And I won't rush through. I'll be grateful and savor my hands. And not just that, I will cherish and celebrate all the milestones that mark our lives, especially the ones we need our hands and feet for. Oh, Archer, honey. I'm so sorry. I tried to soothe myself. At least Archer had had the experience of learning how to tie his shoelaces when he was so young. When is that? Like three or four? I should know with five children. And he had learned how to swim, the crawl, another milestone for a kid. I think around age four or five. And he had learned how to ride a bike. What a rite of passage from being a toddler to being a big kid. Maybe age five or six. All these things that are such symbols of a child's maturation. There were so many. I wondered which milestones lay ahead that Archer would not be able to experience. He had just turned 17 two weeks ago. Oh, I had to stop this type of thinking. It was torture. As I carefully placed his little facial hairs in the pocket of my bathrobe, I pushed open the wooden shower swing door, and I looked up and saw, as if for the first time, the broken piece of stained glass. It was not the first time. I felt that way, and it made me a little teary. I guess I was seeing it in a way I had never seen before. A few years back, I had installed two old Cape May Victorian stained glass windows on either side of the outdoor shower stall. I thought they'd be pretty and would also let in some light while affording privacy. I had built a little trim around each one to make them fit in the cutout of the wooden wall. Well, maybe it was last summer or so, <laughs> Archer had broken a piece of the leaded glass, a yellow corner piece when he hit a wiffle ball that ricocheted off the stained glass window. I knew it was an accident, but I still yelled at him for breaking it because it couldn't be replaced. Well, it really just wasn't worth it. But in that moment, as I stood in our outdoor shower stall looking at that broken window, Oh, I wanted him to be able to break it again and again 
hold your bat and hit that ball, baby. It's okay. Oh my God. I couldn't believe how fragile I was. Back in the house, as I dressed to drive back to the hospital, my phone was pinging like crazy again. I sat down in the kitchen to scroll through the messages. People were so kind, and I appreciated every single person. The messages from the prayer warriors were invaluable, and the pictures of angels and spiritual sayings a few friends were sending me meant a lot. Like I love this one, my friend Ann Hammond from Houston sent me. The angels of God guard us through the night and quiet the powers of darkness. The Spirit of God be our guide to lead us to peace and to glory. It was a picture of a blondish-haired angel in blue. You know, a beautiful picture and a meaningful saying really are powerful. Thank you, Anne. She knew. And you know what else is helpful? Monica Kosky, one of my mediators who had moved to Delaware, and Hadley Hubbard Feiss, one of my other friends in Cape May, offered their houses for Overflow family. Kathy Giannoskoli and one of my Malta friends' daughters, Beth Darrell, offered cars. And Kathy and Joanne Quinzer also offered to drive food and people up to Atlantic City. These were big offers because Atlantic City was almost an hour away. And once there, the kids had said traffic was horrendous. And my brother, Will Phipps, offered to move back into our house in Baltimore in mid-September to December, saying he could live in the basement to help with Archer. So kind. I had a text from Dr. Ken Williams. It was so touching. Louise, please call me at any time. I will do anything for Archer and your family. And David Kelly said that too. He texted, Louise, our family will do anything we can to help you. University of Maryland Medical System, Shock Trauma, has a world-renowned spinal injury team and therapy team. If you need help transitioning back to Baltimore, we can help. Financially, your health insurance should cover everything. I am sure I can help you there. Call me when you're ready. I wish I had words to make this better. I am so sad, but no miracles do happen. I will be praying continuously. Peace be with you and your family. Call me any time, day or night. These offers were incredible. To tell someone whom you know is needy that they can call you anytime, day or night, it's a lot to offer. It really is. And there were others who did this as well. Amazing generosity. These texts and messages and offers were exactly what helped ground me. Whether I took them up on their offers or not, I knew they were there and I knew they were real. They knew, they knew what to say. I looked around our little kitchen and it was full of food 
from who knows where. Angels, honestly, thoughtful people, and bringing really nice food. Homemade fried chicken, bowl of berries, looks like a vegetable casserole, plate of carrot cake muffins. Plus, there were two grocery bags full of what looked like chips, crackers, cookies. There was a bag of Snickers candy bars and a case of water and a case of, what were they? Chocolate Yahoo something. Kids would probably love that. I knew whoever was asleep at our house and staying at our home would be fed. And that was very comforting to me. Thank you, shoppers, and bakers, and cooks. And someone brought a large box of gallon Ziploc bags. She knows. I thought I heard some voices upstairs. Maybe the others were waking up. I didn't really feel like talking to anyone, though. And I just wanted to get back to the hospital as quickly as I could. I scratched a note on a notepad for everyone to call when they woke up and to enjoy the beautiful day and the food and to try to get to the beach. I went to get Archer's backpack to bring back to the hospital. Using our ABC system, he had asked for it. I knew he had had it with him at work. So I texted Danny Giannoscoli, who texted me back that he had gotten the backpack from the beach club and had dropped it off in our middle room. I walked into that room and sure enough, he had put it next to Archer's easel and his oil paints. There was that new canvas he had been working on. Archer and I had talked about how he didn't like how the painting was turning out, and he was going to paint over it. I hadn't cared for it that much either, actually, a still life. But, oh... I could feel a surge of wanting to preserve every stroke of it. And I looked at his paintbrushes in the jar of turpentine. I really needed to leave my own house. It was just too painful and too intense. I walked into the front room to leave. I could see his markers on the dining room table that I had asked him to put away. And another surfboard he was designing for someone was along the wall. Archer was all over this house. I just had to get out of there. I realized how vulnerable I was. Sort of fragile, actually. I took two really deep breaths. I got in my car and drove back up the Garden State Parkway for Atlantic City. When I walked into Archer's room, it was a grotesque scene. I was not prepared. Archer's long body looked like it was on a barbecue spit, tilted to one side. There were two more machines and two tubes that were coming out of the sides of his body. What in the world is going on? Life changes in the blink of an eye. Phew the roller coaster of emotions in crisis and loss. It's a wonder we make it through, but we do.
it's crazy, isn't it? I bet you know exactly what I'm talking about. Of course you do, especially if you have experienced a deep loss and you are listening now. You are a survivor. I am too. Human beings are incredibly resilient. I think we're wired to be resilient so we can love deeply. You know what I mean? Have you ever thought about that? We need each other, so we have to love each other. It's part of our survival. But we're also wired to love others because we're wired to love ourselves, and that's the horizontal and the vertical. They go together, earth, sky. Loving deeply means you take a risk of getting hurt. You risk loss and losing that which is most precious to you. It's no wonder some people are afraid to love deeply. Yes, loss, it's painful. But when that loss happens, small or large, and invariably it will, small surface ways or deep cavernous ways, we have a choice. We can be bitter, we can be sad forever, or we can be hangry. And we might feel all these things. I think emotions are the pathway to healing. So I want to feel all of mine. I do. But I don't want to get stuck in anger or blame or pessimism that holds me back from forgiving or laughing deeply or just being at ease. I don't want sadness to hold me back from living fully. So I want to weep as long as it takes to wash away the anger and the bitterness so they don't get plastered onto my heart in any way like plaque. And I don't want to be so wrapped up in my own pain that I cannot see the pain of those around me. I don't want to become hardened in any way that doesn't allow my heart to be moved by others' losses. Oh, there are so many in our world. I want to be compassionate and I want to feel resilient. I want to be able to enter into the suffering of others with them because we are all so interconnected. And through that shared suffering, I want to emerge together triumphant. We are never alone. I think about that risk we take when we love deeply and even when we care deeply. And I think about the risk God takes in loving me deeply because I let God down a lot. And when I turn away from God or act in ways that are not fully good and sometimes downright mean or self-absorbed, I feel bad. 
And I think to myself, oh, how I must have hurt God. I love God so much. I have been given so much abundance in my life. And I tell God, I am so sorry. And he knows I feel terrible about it because he knows my heart. And God always forgives me. Yep, God takes a risk on loving me and on loving you. God, he or she, however you want to look at it, the source, male or female, yes, I mean the mystery, knows our hearts. He knows. She knows. And you know what? The love we are capable of experiencing with each other with our children, with our siblings, with our spouse, with our friends. It's because we were fashioned and are fashioned in his image, an image of love and forgiveness. Or she fashioned us in her image. I don't know. It doesn't matter to me. It's both. It transcends him or her, he or she. And that transcendence is why we can love and weep and love again. That's why I can love and weep and love again. That's why you can love and weep and love again too. At least that's the way I see it. Maybe there is somebody you loved or something you loved that you need to weep deeply about so you can love again. Life is so precious. Sending love. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Please subscribe on our site, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen. If you have a story to share, please contact Louise Phipps Semph directly, louise at blinkofaneyepodcast.com. She would love to hear from you.